Welcome to VBAC Birth Stories. Join us as we speak to Australian women about their journey towards a vaginal birth after cesarean. In Australia, the cesarean rate has risen to 36%. That's one of the highest rates in the developed world. We hope that by sharing these stories, women and their care providers are able to gain insight into why these rates are on the increase. We also get to meet and understand the women behind these numbers. We are your hosts, Mel and Steph, and we hope you enjoy Season 3 of Feedback Birth Stories. VBAC Birth Stories acknowledge the ongoing connection that Aboriginal people have to this land and recognise Aboriginal people as the original custodians of the land on which we stand. This podcast is produced on Darugan Gandagara and Gadiga land and we would like to pay respect to its elders, past and present. Hi everyone, I hope you're doing well as we approach the end of 2022 and you're coping okay what can be a very hectic time of year, especially for mums. We hope that you're keeping your head above it all. This episode will be our last episode for the year and also for a little while as we'll be taking a small break from the podcast into 2023. We are thrilled to end the year off hearing from the lovely Rachel Rays, a mum of two living in Sydney who had an unmedicated VBAC in a private hospital setting after going through 35 hours of labour. Following her caesarean, Rachel went on to experience poor postpartum maternal mental health and reflects on how her birth unfolding the way it did could have contributed to those feelings. Rachel explains her reasons for wanting to try for a vaginal birth again, and one of those reasons is not one that you would immediately think of, but Rachel so eloquently explains how just the very process of going on a VBAC journey can have the potential to teach us important life lessons. Thank you, Rachel, for opening up to us and sharing with passion your VBAC story and all of the things that served you well in your pregnancy and what having a VBAC journey meant to you. We know your story will be so helpful to many women who are seeking options for their next birth after cesarean. Just before we hear Rachel's story, Steph and I just want to thank everybody who listens to the podcast and all of the beautiful women who have reached out to share your story. Even if we are yet to chat, Steph and I truly appreciate that you take the time to message us and trust us to share your VBAC journey someday. As always, thank you to our patrons who have helped to bring the podcast to you this year. And thanks also to those who have supported the podcast by supporting the brands we work with. You can see our list of affiliates in the show notes and also see what current offers are available by heading to our Instagram story highlight called discounts. For now, please enjoy this episode of VBAC Burnt Stories and we wish you all the best for the new year. So thanks, Rachel. Did you just want to tell us, start by telling us maybe a little bit about yourself and your family? 
So I live in Sydney. I actually am from Melbourne, though, originally, and I moved to Sydney for love, which worked out quite well because I have two children now from that same relationship. (laughs) So I'm very glad that I moved here. (laughs) Yeah, so we're a family of four and I have a lovely partner and a toddler and a newborn who's five weeks old. What do I do? Well, I'm a a mum, so I'm a full-time mum. Everyone's a full-time mum, but I look after my children full-time. And I also do a bit of work when they're napping, which is, of course, quite challenging, but I managed to get it done. So I create content on Instagram for brands, which I'm very lucky to be able to do from wherever I, I want. And before that, I was a TV presenter, which I've taken a break from because the hours are not very helpful when you're waking up during the night to breastfeed. <laughs> yes, no, it's late nights and... Yeah, all of the parenting stuff would be tough. It, it definitely doesn't. It's, I was waking up at about 2.30 in the morning or if I was reading the news of an evening, I'd be in bed about the same time. So it definitely messes with your body clock. Yeah. But as does waking up during the night. <laughs> yes. So did you want to take us back to, I guess, before you fell pregnant the first time, did you have any ideas about wanting to fall pregnant, how you would imagine a pregnancy or a birth to go, any preconceived ideas about birth and pregnancy, I guess? I didn't know much about pregnancy, birth, being a mother. I'd never been around babies. I was actually a teacher, a high school teacher before I moved into television And so I knew a lot about teenagers. So I kind of wanted to have a baby but be born as a teenager because I knew and most parents would completely disagree with me on that. But I knew about older children and I didn't know anything about newborns. I didn't know anything about pregnancy, birth. I'd never been around it. But I did have some ideas about, I guess, hospitals. And I knew a lot about the level of intervention, which I was not interested in at all. And I really wanted to have a natural birth. And my birth plan for my first birth was, it was pages long and it had explanations of why I didn't (laughs) want to be induced. And these are my values and these are my morals. And, you know, I have a spiritual side to me and this and that. And like no one at the hospital really cares about that. Neither did the obstetrician. And I also didn't know, speaking of obstetrician, I didn't know the difference of interventions between the level of intervention rather of whether you go private and have a private obstetrician and then that scale all the way back to basically a home birth or a free birth and then the public system and midwifery group programs and all that sort of stuff. I didn't know anything about that. It was just, I just went private because that's what I knew. I had private health cover and the first thing we did was to when we wanted to have a baby was to, I guess, increase our level of cover so that we were covered for obstetrics. I felt very educated on what I wanted, but looking back, I really had a lot of trouble advocating for myself in comparison to the second birth. Mm -hmm. But preconceived ideas mainly was just based around the hospital system and how I really didn't like a lot of the things that I was reading and the statistics I was reading and and the stories I was I was hearing from from a lot of women. Had that come from just having the knowledge that from other women that you knew that there was high rates of intervention or it actually came I think very strongly actually it came from an inner knowing that I'm not the type of person to take a Panadol when I have a headache. I always look at why do I have this headache? okay, I'm dehydrated or I'm stressed or I haven't been wearing my glasses. And so I'll go back to that's what I need to do rather than taking a Panadol. So I'm not, I'm not a person who takes much medication at all. I'd rather look at the cause of what is happening within my body, but also 
you know, my, my, I guess, personal preference on medication and doing things a more natural way in line with, well, why is this happening? And the trust in the woman's body and the woman's body's ability to birth. But probably I had heard a few things here and there, but I definitely read a lot during my pregnancy. But at the beginning of my pregnancy, I wasn't as well read. I think it started to ramp up as I started to read more. Why aren't we trusting in a woman's body? Why is there so much intervention? And I started after I've got some milk squirting everywhere. (laughs) Okay. We've seen it all before. We've seen it all before. (laughs) I'm going straight into the camera. You know what? (laughs) Well, that would be a first. (laughs) She's a very good presenter. Rachel's a very good presenter. I'll keep my audience very engaged. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so that's where that would have come from, I think. Is that hard to manage, I guess, particularly because you've got an on-camera role, is that hard to manage a pregnancy and sickness and things like that when you've got to be sort of on on the go and presenting a certain, you know, face? and Yeah, I never threw up at work, (laughs) so that was good. (laughs) Um, or on air. I only did a couple of times at home during the first trimester. But it, it is a little bit challenging in that, I guess, being on camera, you look a certain way, right? Mm. And even though it was news-based, what I was doing, like news, reading the news, you can't see because obviously you can only see up to here, but um, the weather, you get a full body picture. And so as my body changed and um, as I became more pregnant, yeah, there were some comments that was like, oh, wear particular things that, you know, people aren't sure whether you're put on weight or you're pregnant type of thing. So that was a bit uncomfortable, probably is a bit of an understatement. Mm. It's a, I think being pregnant is a beautiful thing when I see pregnant women on television. I think that's amazing. Congrats. This yeah, is awesome. Yeah, definitely. Um, so those kinds of things. But I wasn't really sick in that um, I couldn't work at that point. The early mornings, yeah. the obstetrician suggested it might not be that great. Yeah. So then I, I did the non-230 wake-up shifts later on into the pregnancy when it became a little bit challenging. How did that first pregnancy go? Was it an easy pregnancy? I think all things considered it was. My daughter arrived in the middle of the year in 2020. So my pregnancy actually started during the bushfires in New South Wales, those massive bushfires at the end of 2019. So that was the beginning and there was so much smoke around Sydney. I was actually reporting on the bushfires at the time at work. We went on a holiday and that was fantastic. We went and visited some wineries. Obviously, I didn't do anything but smell the wine. And then COVID hit. So there were the restrictions in place and we were quite uncertain at that stage about anything because we didn't know what was going on really so I think given those circumstances it was really good I did feel really good during my pregnancy I mean I only had that typical sickness I craved a lot of cheese a lot of cheese as I did with my second pregnancy I'm actually lactose intolerant but when I feel pregnant I'm not it's amazing and so I overindulge in cheese the amount of cheese I eat during my pregnancy is is I could f- feed the whole of Sydney with that amount of cheese. Oh, that's so funny <laughs> that it just disappears when you're pregnant. It's great. Yeah. So take us towards the end of your pregnancy. Were you feeling good at that point? Um, were there any complications that arose and how was your relationship there with your obstetrician? Was your obstetrician on board with your um, desire to birth as naturally and as intervention-free as possible? <laughs> 
I didn't know what questions to ask the obstetrician. I didn't know how to choose an obstetrician. I just went off what people were, my friends who they recommended and people I knew and who had kind of a good name in my area. I didn't choose an obstetrician based on the level of intervention. I never <laughs> asked the questions about what are your C-section rates, for example. So I had placenta previa at the beginning of my pregnancy, but that went away pretty easily. It didn't cause any um, obstruction to for the baby to exit naturally. He did ask, my obstetrician did ask me, I can't remember the timing, but it might have been, you know, like 38 weeks or maybe 39 weeks around there, whether I wanted a stretch and sweep. And, and there were no complications, by the way. Um, it was a very healthy pregnancy, low risk, all those sorts of things. So when he asked me about the stretch and sweep was in an appointment and I just knew that it was something that I wasn't really sure whether I wanted, but I didn't really know what it was. So I asked him, you know, what is it and why would I? Why would I have it? And his response was, oh, some women just like to have it. And I just really didn't know. So I sort of felt quite pressured. And as I mentioned before, I didn't have that much confidence to sort of really keep asking. So he he did a check and he said, oh, we can't actually do it because your cervix is closed. But looking back now, it was it was not necessary. I didn't need it. I didn't have the knowledge of, well, this isn't aligned with my birth plan. Him being an obstetrician and knowing what my birth plan was, he probably did know that it wasn't aligned. That was kind of it because my baby arrived at, I think it was 39 plus six or something like that. What happened towards the end of the pregnancy? So I, my waters broke in, in that pregnancy. My waters broke by themselves. I went into spontaneous labour. I went to the hospital actually when my waters broke. I didn't see the obstetrician. But I showed the midwife my birth plan. She checked me and she said, everything's fine. If you don't want to be induced, you need to stay at home as long as possible. And I was like, okay, I knew that because I, I knew about being on the clock and all these sorts of things. So she said, just stay at home as long as possible. So I did that. Then for that pregnancy, my waters broke. We went out, my partner and I, we went out for a coffee or something during the day. And then my contractions began. I think it was that night. They went overnight. We put the TENS machine on. I didn't get much sleep. I had contractions fairly regularly overnight and at some points they were intense. But overnight I had called the hospital twice and I'd spoken to whoever it was that answered the phone at the birthing part of the hospital and they, they weren't very nice. I wasn't well received and it made me feel really, really anxious. And I think because of that anxiety and the tiredness overnight, my contractions fully stopped about maybe 6am or something like that in the morning or 5am. And I had a massive meltdown. I was wailing. I was, I was crying. Like my partner said, he'd never seen me in that state before. And then we decided, okay, let's go to hospital. But I know now looking back at that, I'm sure it was that anxiety that stopped. My body didn't feel safe. I didn't feel safe going into hospital. Mm. Then I managed to bring myself back to centre, went to the hospital, walking through the doors of the hospital. I bawled my eyes out. I was feeling really, really anxious. I got into the hospital. The midwife put the CTG to check the baby's heart rate and I was resting a little bit as well because I was very, very tired. She called the obstetrician. He came in and said that the baby's, I think it was that her heart rate was dropping 
or it was it was irregular, something of that variety. We said, okay, well, what are the sort of options? And he told us the options. And he said, okay, the first option is we do nothing, and I wouldn't recommend that. The second option is we can induce you, but there's a, a chance that you'll need an emergency cesarean, like a full-on emergency. We've got to get you to theatre now. The third option is to have a cesarean. It wouldn't be a full-on emergency. We've got 30 minutes or whatever. We don't need to, like, take you to theatre right now. And we didn't know what to ask. We really didn't know. We were both very exhausted, my partner and I. So we asked, what would you do if it, were your, if it, was, if it was your child? And he said, I would have a cesarean now. I'd, I'd have a cesarean. And we said, okay, give us a moment. We had a bit of a chat. Um, that was one thing we learned in the calm birth class was to just ask for a moment. Everything else we'd made notes and written down. We couldn't remember all these yeah. things to ask and what to say and all these things. And we had a moment where we were like, we're paying this guy and he's recommending that. That's what we would do. We didn't have any information about the pros and cons of each of the options. Or if we did nothing, will my contractions start again? Or, yeah. you know, what would happen for any of those options? But we thought, well, that's what he says. That's what we should do. So I went for a, a cesarean and it wasn't a full-on emergency, but you know, I got taken downstairs and I was so tired by this point. I, I hadn't, you know, slept all night. So that's what we did. That's what I did. And did you feel like before you got into the hospital and you'd spoken to people on the phone, did you feel that they were being dismissive of your early labour pains or what, what had upset you the most about it? I basically mentioned that I didn't need to call, wasn't necessary to call, they didn't really care, just come in whenever. It was like a why are you calling, what's the point of you calling type thing, whereas I thought uh, I was doing the right thing to let yeah. them know this is where I'm up to so they could, you know, know That's when right. someone's coming in. Or advise you when to come in or what to do next, yeah. What um, was the reason they for your cesarean? Was it the heart rate? Like what was the actual reason that they recommended it was the the heart rate is what I remember and I'm still a little bit confused as to why it was um so your waters would have been broken I think similar to me so you would have your waters would have been broken for more than 12 hours and then you had that whole night and then there was the the contractions had stopped so they'd said look the only way now because the heart rate is decreasing, the only way to get you into labour would be to induce you or to go straight for the cesarean. Yeah, and it was a, a quite a um, we don't want to induce you because it will end up in a full-on emergency cesarean was the, yeah. the message that I received. I can't remember the words that were actually used. Yeah, And mind you, I was very tired at that point and yeah. I'm not sure now having given birth vaginally, I'm not sure I would have necessarily have had it in me. I mean, obviously if it was happening, I would have just done what had to be done. But I was, I was very tired. I'd been up all night and I'd also become very upset. And I didn't have a doula. I don't know if we were allowed to have a doula, but I didn't have a doula either. So I didn't have sort of any of that extra support that I had for my second pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So with your cesarean, um, was that a positive experience? Did you get to hold your baby in theatre or breastfeed in recovery or in theatre, any of that sort of take place? I mean, going, I remember going down and I was looking back at some photos before our conversation as well, going down into theatre. I didn't really know what 
cesarean was I actually asked my obstetrician during some of our prenatal appointments you know I said to him I remember I said to him look I haven't really researched a cesarean because I'd researched nearly everything else so I'm not really sure you know about what you know to ask and he said oh you know you don't really worry too much it's very low chance of a cesarean so going down into theatre I didn't really know anything about a cesarean obviously I knew it was surgery but I hadn't had a major surgery before I'd had a little operation on my my finger I broke my finger when I was younger and things like that but I didn't really know anything about it maybe that was a bit of a blessing in disguise so I wasn't really worried so after the baby arrived I thought this was all normal by the way at this point it was only reflecting on this during my my pregnancy with my second child that I realized that this wasn't actually normal so once my baby arrived she went with um, her dad my partner and I gave him strict instructions to stay with her do not take your eyes off her I'd heard some horror stories you know about baby swaps and things like that and I was like this just stay with her all the time or mistaken not baby swaps but like you know something I'd read a while ago had stuck with me obviously so he stayed with her and they cut the cord and he went with her while they did the checks and all that sort of stuff and then she came onto my chest for a short amount of time uh a very short amount of time. I couldn't tell you how long, but it was a very short amount of time. Then she went with her dad. They had skin to skin, which for him was the most memorable experience. He loved that. That was amazing for him. And I'm very glad she was with him. What I was doing, I was in the the theatre in recovery, but I was in the same place that I was in for the surgery uh, while people cleaned up around me. And I was there for about an hour by myself. Oh, my gosh. And I remember seeing the obstetrician. He was cleaning up or doing something. And I, I went to ask him a question, but he obviously didn't hear me. And then um, I remember there was a lady who I didn't know who she was cleaning up around me, emptying the bins or something like that. And I was there by myself and it was such a strange thing, but I didn't know that that wasn't normal. And I, I didn't know that that, that I should have been with my baby. I think I got wheeled down to the room where her dad was and, and saw her again, my baby again. And then we had skin to skin and so on. But the first hour was not as it should be. And how did you feel about the decision to have the cesarean sort of immediately after or during that time? Were you sort of resigning, resigning yourself to that decision or... How, like, how did you feel about it in that moment? Or you weren't really thinking about it? No. I had no idea. No, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I knew obviously that I wanted a vaginal birth, but I didn't really know. I didn't, yeah, I just didn't know. I, it was all a, quite a blur. I did have very poor postpartum mental health, very poor, which was one of the reasons why I really wanted a VBAC. My mental health was um, was not good at all, but I didn't really know that at the time. I knew I wasn't feeling great, but looking back, it was even worse than what I thought. But I didn't know at the time that was because of, I mean, there there would have been a few contributing factors, but one of them was having a cesarean. Yeah. And I think the other thing is then having that separation period of you and and her so you're having that hour afterwards so was anyone speaking to you during that time or you were just sort of on your own I I was very much on my own maybe someone came I don't remember that anyone really came to support me I remember having the shakes 
and not really knowing what it was. And maybe I asked someone who sort of walked in and just to check on, I don't know whether anyone was specifically there to check on me, um, but I, I did think that was just how it was, not, yeah. mm-hmm. not being, now looking back, you know, I should have been with my child at that point. That's mm-hmm. a crucial time. But no, I didn't feel like there was support and, and that there was anyone really there for me. Or even just to explain to you, you'll feel this way for a while or you'll, you'll have the shakes, that's the result of the epidural or things like that, yeah. I think someone did tell me that it was the result of the epidural. Yeah. I, I do have a memory of someone telling me that, but that's about the extent of it, I think. And then in terms of, uh, you know how they'd said that when you got to hospital that, you know, baby's heart rate was slowing did they do any further checks on her after she was born to sort of, it was everything okay there or were there any complications arising from that or everything was fine with her health-wise? There were no complications from that that I know of or knew of then. And um, she arrived, yeah, healthy and Mm. well. And, yeah, that, that was, I mean, yeah, I don't know why. No one, no one really explained. Even at the six-week checkup, no one really explained mm. why that might have been or anything like that. When you came out of surgery and you were able to actually hold her and be reunited with your husband, what did that feel like in that period? How how were you feeling? Like, I don't. It was like a blur in a way. It wasn't, um, it, yeah, it, it wasn't, yeah, it was, it was quite, I feel like that was quite a blur. It's not, a, it's not a point where I. Not a clear memory. In particular. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's very little reason, unless there's a life or death situation, there's very little reason for that separation to go on, but it, it's a lot more common than you would think. I mean, most of the women mm. we yeah. speak to have had this this period of separation following the cesarean. Yeah. After that experience with the birth, how did you go in that postpartum period? You mentioned that there was some, um, I guess, difficulties and it was one of the reasons why you wanted to really pursue a VBAC. Did you get any support in that period to help you? Was breastfeeding okay as well? support was just minimal, minimal. I'm very, so I guess there were pros and cons of that time in, in 2020. And one was that my partner was working from home. So he was able to help a lot. His bond with our daughter is just beautiful. It's a magical bond. They spent so much time together. And I guess the um, cons of that time were that we couldn't have a lot of support in our home in terms of we were just unsure. We we weren't sure yeah. like with friends coming over. None of our families live in Sydney. So um, my family's in Melbourne. They couldn't come up. My partner's family live on the other side of the world, so they couldn't come and help. And his mother has only just met my toddler, actually, which has been beautiful. They've been spending some really nice time together. So in terms of breastfeeding, you asked about breastfeeding. We ended up getting the help of an IBCLC, and she was incredible. That was to help with my daughter put on putting on weight. And she was incredible, and that was the best thing that I did was, uh, if anyone, you know, if your friend or, or anyone asks if they're having any troubles with breastfeeding or even just to find out how to be make it easier on them. I always say go and go and find a, a, an IBCLC. 
Just for um, our listeners, I might just mention that um, that stands for International Board Certified Lactation Consultant. I hope you got that right. But. No, you did. You did. And But then I actually ended up breastfeeding my daughter until she was nearly two. So it did become easier and it was the most incredible experience and something that I'm so glad that I did get help and it did become easier because I really believe in breastfeeding being incredible nutrition and and great for mother and for baby, of course. So take us to how you were feeling when you fell pregnant with Santi. Were you still breastfeeding Gloria at that time? I was. I was breastfeeding Gloria at that time and we were both loving it. And my plan was to continue until it felt right to not continue. My nipples became incredibly sore. It was very painful and I can't remember at what point during the pregnancy, but I kept going and then I felt like this is a sign that my body's saying this is, this is no longer what you should, you should be doing. So yeah. it was very easy to stop actually. It wasn't, she was quite fine and quite happy with stopping breastfeeding and I was feeding her to sleep for every nap and she ended up being fine with a cuddle and, um, and holding hands. So that was, that was very helpful because it didn't feel good for me at all. And then had you decided at that point if there was anything that you wanted to do differently the second time around or um, a different mode of care? Did you still want to go private or did you want to go public? What were your thoughts on all of that? Interesting question because I went private again. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but it wasn't a, again, it wasn't a decision I made having looked at any, I didn't, by that point I hadn't, I still hadn't really understood the statistics around that spectrum, I guess, of private intervention all the way to home birth and free birth and what's in between. I didn't really know about that. We actually relocated within Sydney, so I asked again, you know, around this area, can anyone recommend an obstetrician? And I had a few people recommend the same obstetrician. I knew I wanted a vaginal birth. I don't think I knew it was really a VBAC. I wasn't really calling it a VBAC at this point. I just knew I wanted a vaginal birth as I did with the first one. And I knew I didn't want to experience the mental health issues that I had the first time around. I didn't, didn't know anything about this obstetrician except someone had said that he was amazing and he had wonderful bedside manner had an appointment with him and then that was kind of it but what I later found out that he was actually very supportive of VBACs and I think he might even have some kind of role within the adjoining public hospital being in charge of VBACs or something along those lines you know when you start (laughs) you start your pregnancy and they give you a folder but I didn't read it until you know months later and what I read in it I was really really pleased to read that it was very encouraging of vaginal births and it gave statistics and it was written in a way that I thought, oh, he actually is very supportive of, of vaginal births. Yeah. I didn't know this going into it again. I just, yeah. um, you know. It was lack of the draw that you happened to choose this particular obstetrician then, like it all worked out. How did the second pregnancy go for you in terms of your physical and mental health? How were you feeling and looking after a toddler? How did you balance all of that in the second pregnancy? My second pregnancy was very similar to the first. Again, I craved cheese like it was going out of fashion (laughs) and I just kept eating it. Uh, And I felt 
Very similar to the first pregnancy. I was obviously a little bit more tired looking after a toddler. And towards the end, we you know, started to put on a bit of bluey and a bit of play school and a bit of the wiggles. And that was something that I didn't do for a long time. We, we were very, um, you know, up until that point, I should say, <laughs> very strict on screen time. <laughs> but then I yeah. became very tired. And because we didn't have any family here, you know, it was yeah. just me looking after her. Then my mother-in-law came to stay with us later on in the pregnancy, maybe, uh, I don't know, a month or two before I gave birth. So that was very helpful. So that gave me a bit of extra time to sleep and and rest and so on. So that was very helpful. When did you start to sort of get more um, information about VBACs that was external to the hospital? Like when did you discover the podcast, for example, and um, other VBAC, if you you have discovered other VBAC um, resources? So I discovered the podcast, I think, I think it might have been via the VBAC Facebook group. Yeah. It would have been very early in the pregnancy because I listened to your episode with Hazel and I it really resonated with me. And I remember walking, I was going for a walk and I was listening to this, this podcast and I just thought, oh, wow, I'm not the only one who's felt this way and how incredible. And I'm not sure at what stage in the pregnancy, but it might have been, you know, probably after I was feeling maybe the start of the second trimester or something like that. And I listened to a few episodes of the podcast. And then interestingly, nothing against the podcast, by the way, but I felt within me to go within and I didn't want any external stories. I didn't want any external advice except from specific people that I had, my friend who's a midwife, my partner. I really didn't tell many people that I wanted a VBAC or how much I wanted a VBAC rather yes. because I didn't want to ruin my chances of having a VBAC. I didn't want any, want any external, no expectations, yeah. but I didn't want any pointers. I didn't want anyone to say, oh, it'll go how it'll go. Oh, birth just, you've got no control of birth. Those kinds of comments that are yes. pretty common, which I found yeah. with my first birth. So I really didn't want to talk to many people about the birth except for those people I'd chosen. And I went very internal to the point that, for the last few months of my pregnancy or probably the last half of my pregnancy, I really didn't want to speak to many people. I wasn't really interested in catching up with people that much. I did still catch up with people and um, I still took my toddler to her, you know, play group and, and swimming and all that sort of stuff. But I really went very internal and I wasn't really sure why, but now it's become very apparent why that happened. I think for me it was in a way training for what was to come for the birth and that was it's me myself and I I I have got to deal with whatever consequence you know whatever happens with this no one else has to deal with that it's me I I either go through it having made decisions that I'm happy with or I give the decision making process I hand it to somebody else the other thing is I wanted an unmedicated birth I didn't want any medication which is how it ended up which I'm it was the most amazing experience ever, by the way. Um, but I knew once I had a move, I think it, maybe it was during labour or after labour, but it was like, ah, that's why I went internal because that's what happened during the birth. But I also, during the second half of the pregnancy, I I really aligned with what felt right. And I tuned in to the absolute nth degree to what felt right and what didn't feel right. And as well as that, 
it was also something for me that was, um, I really wanted a VBAC, but I knew the process of having the VBAC would also give me some skills in life that I really needed. One of those was setting boundaries and advocating for myself. And interestingly, every time I set a boundary, for example, when I told the obstetrician what I really wanted and asked if I asked a question and didn't get an answer that helped me make a decision, I'd ask again in a different way and I'd ask again in a different way. And, and it was respected, which was what was very interesting is that by setting boundaries about, no, that's something that I don't want or asking a question of five or six times until I got the answer I wanted and having that respected, I was like, wow, this I can do this. And that actually also helped me Because by the end of my pregnancy, he really understood what kind of person I was. I wasn't the type of person to say yes to everything he suggested. I needed statistics, not a high risk, low risk. I needed the statistics and I needed answers and I needed, I also did a lot of my own research. So most of the information actually came from my own research, not just from, you know, Google, random Google sites, but from really good research. And that's where I found out a lot of information from. But turning inwards, that was a very interesting time for me. And it was very strange at the time, but I knew it felt right. So were you doing anything else differently in this pregnancy in terms of physical preparation or mental preparation? The second pregnancy, the first one, I did a calm birth course, acupuncture. I saw a women's physio who did internal pelvic checks. I did reformer Pilates. The second one, I actually, I was doing um, some amazing personal training, which I ended up stopping and towards, you know, the third trimester, probably when I felt, it's funny, I just felt like this is, I don't, I'm not, this is not for me right now. So I had a doula, an amazing doula, and it was incredible to have that support. So we had some sessions with her during the pregnancy. She's trained in OMP, optimal maternal positioning. So she gave us some exercises that we struggled to fit in, but we did them a few times, but they were fantastic. She also suggested to maybe see a women's physio. And again, I just felt into it and I felt like, no, it's not quite right. That's not right for me. I did ponder on doing another birthing course. And then again, I I not only thought, I don't really want to spend two days or a day doing this. I also just didn't feel like that's what I was called to do. I really, everything that I did, every single thing that I did, I made sure that it aligned. It aligned. It wasn't just something I was just doing for the sake of doing it. I also read not the whole book, but part of Inna May's Guide to Childbirth. And I read a lot of the stories. And what I found was reading that book and a lot of the stories from that book made me realise, like, this is what, this is what a woman's body is being designed to do. And having never given birth vaginally before, I wasn't 100% confident in my ability to do so because I'd never done it before. So I really needed to read those stories to make me remember about my body and a woman's body. And they were incredible stories. And it, it was, yeah, it was a great a great book to, I didn't get through the whole thing, but it was great to read that. And I also read in that, in the VBAC Facebook group, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of people link things. If there was something I was pondering on, often what would happen was in an obstetrician appointment, something would come up and I'd let him know, like, I'll think about this. Or if I sensed that maybe it was about that time when he'd talk about the, the GBS 
test, do the research at that point. So I didn't research everything in one hit. It was like when it sort of popped up for me. One thing I didn't research was pushing and maybe that was a good thing. And so <laughs> did you like did you have anything, any tests that you opted out of or any complications towards the end of the second pregnancy? With the GBS test, I had read that with a lot of situations that if you have the test, you've got no choice on the medication if you turn up positive. This was one of the times when I asked him multiple questions to really get a clear answer. And so he said to me, if I can't remember what it was, but if, you know, A, B and C happen, that's when we would really encourage you to have the medication. Otherwise, we can keep an eye on certain things. It turned out I was, wasn't GBS positive anyway, but I wanted to make sure that I wouldn't be pushed into something that I wasn't sure. At that point, I didn't know, do I want the medication or do I not if I'm positive? But I wanted to make sure I had the option and that I was able to make that decision and not fall into someone else's hands. Mm-hmm. That you would be supported in your informed decision making at that time. Yeah, exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that's good. That's good that you brought that up. I asked a lot of questions until I was happy. And and that was one thing that I also made a point to myself to do. And that was even if I feel scared to ask this question. And I think maybe there's a lot of women that go to an obstetrician's office or a doctor's office and feel worried about asking questions. And um, I, I made the point that even if I felt scared and even if it came out in a funny way and didn't come out sounding right, that I would ask until I felt satisfied that I understood what I needed to understand. And, I mean, we paid so much money that I should have been doing that for the first one and the second one. But it's very hard, I think, to do that. So towards the end of the pregnancy, he really did understand what kind of person I was and what I needed and I wasn't just going to go, yeah, sure, let's just do that. Yeah, whatever you think. It was like, no, I need to know. Then I'll make a decision. And I might not make it today. I might go away and I might tell you next week or I might tell you in two weeks, but I need to have the information. What were your non-negotiables going into that second birth? I knew that two things that were strongly encouraged were the cannula on arrival. From what I'd read, not from what the obstetrician had said, the cannula on arrival and um, continuous monitoring. Towards the end of the pregnancy, I also didn't want to push things that didn't mean heaps to me. I sort of wanted to pick my battles in a way. I thought, okay, so what is it that I want to get out of this birth and what's going to help me get that? And I knew that by being in flow, I would have a better chance of success of having a vaginal birth. So what was going to help me be in flow? If anything annoyed me, it would change that. What was going to annoy me? Was a cannula in my arm going to annoy me? Well, I didn't really know what I was going to be like in labour. So I thought if I can't move, then that's going to really annoy me if it's going to, you know, poke me and prod me. So I And I also thought, well, if it is an emergency, you know, someone's going to be able to put in my arm. I said to him, you know, I I don't want that. And he said, okay, that's all right. I also, the other thing that I, I really didn't want were a lot of vaginal examinations because... Well, I'd had that experience with the first pregnancy that it was, there was, you know, an unnecessary attempt at a stretch and sweep. I just didn't want that. I wanted spontaneous labour. I was very much okay with waiting for my body to do what it needed to do with my baby. So I told the obstetrician and in the birth plan as well, I want minimal vaginal examinations and only when, you know, really necessary. And then we spoke about monitor, continuous monitoring. And I said, I'm not sure what I think because I've never worn that monitor before, but I'm okay with having it. But if it does annoy me, I won't want to wear it. That was sort of how I went about that part. 
I didn't have the cannula on arrival. I didn't have the cannula the whole time. And I had the monitoring and it was fine until it got to when I was moving heaps. And thankfully, I'm so grateful to our doula. She kept it on to keep the heart rate being sent to wherever it gets sent so that the staff were happy with it. Just before we get on to the birth, were you worried about uterine rupture? Was that something that was on your mind in this pregnancy? It was not something that was on my mind. I was not worried about it at all. It, I don't even know if I really thought about it or researched it. I just knew that um, it was something that people, that you know, doctors worry about or, or midwives worry about with VBACs, and that was the main reason for a lot of the decisions, but I really didn't think about it. You're feeling good now as you approach the end stages of your pregnancy Everything's going well, no complications. Tell us how you went into labour. I had a very long labour. It was about 35 hours and three hours pushing. No medication. The best experience probably of my life. It was amazing, incredible. And that was exactly what I wanted. I wish I could go back to all the feels. It was like, oh, I did that. It wasn't, it was just a, I did it. So how did it happen? So Sunday night, my waters broke. I wasn't sure whether to go into hospital or not, but I had an obstetrician appointment the next day anyway. I pondered for a long time overnight whether to go into the hospital or not. And um, I spoke to my doula and I spoke to my midwife friend who had been helping me. I knew if I went into hospital, there was that chance of me losing the flow. So I finally decided, okay, I don't want to ruin my flow. Um, some of the advice was that tune into your baby and obviously, you know, check for certain things to make sure that your baby and, and you are safe. So I ended up going to the obstetrician the next morning and I walked in. He said, oh, hello, how are you going? And I said, oh, I'm great. My waters are broken. And he was very calm and I was also very calm as well. He checked the baby. The heart rate was good. He respected my wishes and he basically said to me to, you know, would I mind going in for a CTG to just, you know, monitor the baby if I wanted. He was very respectful of asking if that's something that was, I was okay with. And I said, yeah, that's fine. No worries. And he gave me some statistics because he knew what I needed. And that was kind of it. And he, And I told him, you know, I want to wait for spontaneous labour to begin and, you know, I'm happy to wait. And he said, no worries. Well, if you are happy to wait and it goes over this amount of time, then it, if, you, if you're happy to, you can come into the hospital once a day and have a check and so on. So anyway, I went up for a CTG and the midwife that I spoke to was fantastic. She was really lovely and everything was fine. And I went home and then my contractions really started. So we put the TENS machine on. And I just stayed at home and I rolled with it and I had contractions overnight, started playing a playlist which was on for the whole time, a beautiful classical playlist. And I listen to the music now and I just, it, it, it's lovely, a lovely playlist. I'd been speaking to the doula and my midwife friend as well to just keep an eye on things and obviously my waters had broken so just to make sure that everything was okay and taking my temperature and, and so on. My plan was to stay at home as long as possible and only really go in when things really started to ramp up. I mean they the contractions were quite intense at that point but nothing like what they were to become. But then the house in the morning having a toddler and having you know my mother-in-law's here 
and just being at home, I guess it was quite loud and um, there was a lot going on. And so I really just felt like I knew that the time was right to go to the hospital, even though it was earlier than what I had planned to do. So we went to the hospital. Once I got there, it did feel a bit early, but I knew that being at home wasn't the right decision. Our doula came to the hospital at that point as well. And I just rolled with it. I just breathed through the contractions. The doula had some magical things in her kit, um, some homeopathy, I think. And we did some OMP as well, some optimal maternal positioning. I did have a vaginal examination, not at the very beginning, but the midwife asked if it's okay to have one. And I said, oh, not yet. I'll just wait. But I can't remember when I ended up having one. Maybe when I was around three centimetres, I ended up having one. For the most part, we were left alone. Midwives really didn't come in very often at all. I think just to check the monitor a couple of times. But I think because we had a doula who was amazing, they were happy to just leave us, which I was very, very happy with to be you know, just left to go about what I knew I needed to do. So then all day I was in the hospital room having contractions, breathing breathing through them. I did a few like meditations. And then when they started ramping up, I had read that sitting on the toilet could help. But for me, that level of intensity increased so much that it was too much for me. There was a point during my labour in which the contractions were quite strong and I was lying down having a small rest. One of the midwives came in and I had my eyes closed. And while she was talking, I kept my eyes closed because I just felt something was about to happen that I wasn't going to be extremely happy about. She came in and she said, the obstetrician has asked if we can do a vaginal examination. And if you're not at, if you haven't dilated, we like you to dilate, I think it was one centimetre an hour. And if you haven't dilated to seven centimetres or something along those lines, then we'll have to talk about a C-section. And I kept my eyes closed and the feelings I felt inside were, it was, I waited till she left the room and I didn't say anything. I just said, oh, we'll think about it. I think I said, oh, just need some time. And I bawled my eyes out. I was wailing. I was like why what is the point the baby was happy the entire time I was healthy and happy it was just a timing thing that was all it was based on and I knew about this and I knew by going to the hospital a little bit earlier that this could be that you know certain things could happen but I didn't really expect that because everyone was happy so my doula encouraged me to to release all those feelings then she did a visualization with me about this fear and were there any other fears and my other fear was that not just having the c-section because of course there's always that potential to have to to need a c-section if something does actually happen but it was that I was going to be strongly encouraged to have a c-section despite everyone being healthy and happy that was my other fear so we did a visualization and then um, I'd released everything and after that I I was like, all right, baby, we are doing this. We're having a VBAC. And I found this energy and it was like I spoke to my baby and I thought because I'd been resting as well, I was like, I'm getting up, I'm doing this, we are doing this. And then the, oh, hang on a moment, I've missed a part. (laughs) So (laughs) I really liked the the determination. (laughs) Because we, we had to have a plan before that happened. 
yeah, I yeah. wasn't going to have a C-section. Yeah. So the reason that that happened was because the doula suggested, well, you could actually have a vagina. So I said, I don't want a vaginal exam. I'll wait till the obstetrician comes. And she said, the other thing you could do, which the midwife didn't say to me, was you could actually have a vaginal exam now. And the benefit of this could be that if you haven't dilated, you could ask the midwife for a stretch and sweep, which would potentially encourage you to even more to have a vagina work if they're going to really encourage that cesarean. And I thought, oh, hang on a second. I, I didn't even know this was a possibility. I had no idea. And I thought, actually, that's a really good idea. We had a big conversation about it. So that's what we did. So I asked her for the vaginal, vaginal examination and I was about seven centimetres. So she was happy with that. And the obstetrician was happy. And that's when I was like, we are doing this. That's when I got all that energy. And I was like, come on, <laughs> we, come on, baby. Come on, body. We, we've got this. We've got this. And I changed my mindset. And um, I probably did need to release that. And I didn't realise how strongly I knew I didn't want a cesarean, but I didn't realise how much I didn't want one unnecessarily. So that was when then, I don't know what time that was, but then the, the obstetrician ended up coming in and he wanted to do a vaginal examination, which I didn't really want, but I, I just thought, whatever, let's just do. Like, I'm not going to, I'm just, I'm not going to like try and explain to you why I don't want it or whatever. I remember the feeling of that examination. It was not pleasant at all. It was probably the intensity and the pain was more than any other part of the, the birth. He said, you're 10 centimetres dilated. And I had no idea. I didn't know what I didn't know what I should feel like at certain points or whatever. I just knew the intensity was increasing, and my goal was to just follow my body and tune in, not to know if I feel like this. This is happening. It was like everything's going to happen as it as it's meant to be happening. Some point, my body decided, oh, it wanted to push, and I didn't know. As I mentioned to you both earlier, I knew nothing about pushing. Nothing. I just knew it was pushing, and I'm thinking. Like every time people speak about pushing, I just must have thought, yes, give a couple of like, <laughs> and your baby comes out. But it was not that way at all because it went on for three hours at least. So was it like this involuntary need to push? Like your body was almost taking over that phase? Is that what Definitely you Definitely was. Wow. It was like my body went, the movements and the way my body moved and felt was not me saying yes. I need to sway because that feels good. It was my body going into this animal type primal. It was so like primal and and it was incredible. It was just incredible. I feel so, so lucky to have experienced that because that is something that would never happen in any part of my life. And my body just went into like involuntary movements and then I started pushing and I've actually got some, some videos so I could listen back. I was, and at the time, actually, I remember thinking like, whoa, what is my voice doing? It's like, <laughs> it was like going like, ooh, like a, you know, it was like I, I was in the jungle <laughs> and it was like, what that. is going on? But it was like amazing at the same time. It definitely was an intense sensation. You know, that sensation yeah. is so, I wouldn't call it pain. I wouldn't call anything except for that one vaginal examination painful. It was just an yeah. intense sensation that was out of my control. And I just moved and did whatever I had to do. So during the pushing phase, this incredible midwife came in. And I don't know when she came in, she just appeared. I think she was a grandmother and she was 
amazing. She was so patient. She was very kind and gentle, but she was very certain with her guidance, which is what I needed. I didn't want any gray areas of that. We could do this or you could do that. Or, you know, she sort of asked me, what are you feeling? And, and this, is, this is what you could do if you feel like that's right for you. At some point during the pushing, she recommended to, instead of getting the energy out vocally, to bring the energy down and use it to push, which is, I probably wouldn't have been able to comprehend before I was there, but now it makes all this sense. It was literally like the energy was going down and pushing the baby out. I went from standing, uh, like leaning onto the bed and with my feet on the ground, and she was down there with a mirror and my partner seeing, you know, this wonderful show and <laughs> something I've never seen before. That's so great. <laughs> And then I just tried all these different positions and I think the baby was happy during this time. Obviously the time was going on and what I have now found out is three hours is a long time to push. So we went onto the bed and tried these different things on the bed and I'm, I can't remember why, but I ended up on my, She I think she asked or the obstetrician was there at that point asking like, do I want to go on my back? Which I'd always read, you know, giving birth on your back. Like you see in the movies is never the best way to give birth, but I just sort of went with it by this point. There came a point when I, there, there were, I think two points at which I thought, one, I remember I went into the toilet and I thought, oh, I just can't do this. It was very short-lived. And then there was a moment at which I thought during the pushing, because it was going on for quite a while, that level of intensity at which I thought this is never going to end. And I remember reminding myself whenever I go on a holiday, I always remind myself at the beginning of a holiday, we went to Byron Bay recently, it was an amazing <laughs> holiday, and at the beginning I reminded myself, Rachel, this holiday is going to end. You have to be in the moment because it's going to end. And at the end of it, you'll want to be on that holiday again. Not that I would have, you know, maybe a bit different at the end of giving birth. <laughs> so I reminded myself of that, you know, baby's not going to stay in me forever. It's not going to, this is not going to be forever. And it was weird that I went back to this holiday reminding myself of that. Yeah, so I ended up on my back and then my feet ended up, oh, I don't even know how to explain this without showing you, which probably isn't very appropriate on the podcast, but with my <laughs> legs up and one was on the midwife and one was on my partner sort of holding my feet up so my knees yes. were in more. So I was in that position for quite a while, pushing, and then my hips started to just, this feeling in my hips was like I have to move my legs down. But the obstetrician made a very calm but very assertive point that we needed to get the baby out. And I think the baby's heart rate might have been becoming a little bit unsteady by this point. Not, I don't think, to worry about. There was no feeling of worry in the room. But I think after I asked Octavio, my partner, what was sort of happening, um, and I think that's what he mentioned, and the doula as well, so they kept yeah. you in that position, even though you, you felt the need to move. Did you stay in that position? To I stayed in that position and actually now thinking about it, Steph, the baby was sort of like by the point where my hips felt like they were seizing up, the baby's head was coming out. Oh, this is what I was thinking before. I, I, there was something that popped up that I had to tell you. So my contractions at this point were what I later found out were about half speed from what most people's are, which my obstetrician made a point when I was in hospital after giving birth to tell me that there's nothing wrong with this. It's just a variation on normal. But oh, what wow. that meant was, is that maybe that's why the pushing took a bit longer because my contractions were coming half time 
Yeah. So I had to wait. And I remember thinking, come on, come on, next contraction. Can you just come? Because I'm sitting here waiting, like with a head half out of me, like I can't, there's not much I can do, right? So So you're saying the gap was shorter in between the, uh, longer in between the contractions. You had longer longer to wait. Yeah. 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 And it's funny, like, you know, it's probably the only time when, there's this intensity followed by nothingness. And so I'm this nothingness. I'm just like, la di da di da come on, can we just, you know, <laughs> can this contraction come? And obviously it, you can't force it to come. It just your body does what it wants to do when it's ready to do it. Oh, so, wow. So, yeah, take us to, so you had the head. There was at one point the head was out. How long would you say after that did your whole baby Santi be born. <laughs> well, his head was sort of half in and half out for a while. I wouldn't be able to tell you how long, but it, it felt like an eternity at that point. And um, was, he's sort of doing that thing they say where you push and their head really descends and then it slightly comes back a little bit. Apparently that was happening the whole time during pushing yes. and it was no, going, and going out and then coming back in and going out and coming yeah. in and I'm thinking like, what can I, what else can I do? The level of intensity was just another level. It was, you know, just how on earth can a woman's body get to that? I don't know. How is it possible? But it was an incredible experience. And then actually, Mel, to answer your question that you asked before, the head, when it finally came out, I only know this because I, I wouldn't remember it, but I watched this video back of that part, the doula, Adula took this video and and then it was the obstetrician. He was so calm, so calm, just one more little push, just another little push, and then the shoulders came out and then the baby came out and it was 3 o'clock on the dot that he was born. Um, Octavio held him and said, oh, it's a boy, and then put him on my chest and and the first thing I did was introduce ourselves and I said, I'm your mummy. I sang him a little song. I said, I'm your mummy and this is your daddy and it was like... Uh immediately like wow wow it was like you know I hadn't I hadn't felt that that before that was just incredible it was just incredible oh that's so wonderful tell us about your placenta after that what happened did they um give you the injection of Sinto or did you have a physiological third stage I'd asked for in my birth plan if it's all safe and and okay to do so a physiological third stage and so yes it was physiological third stage I think he might have tugged it a little bit and my doula said to me look at the cord and then look at it after once the all of the um, blood had come out and gone white Mm. and it was very respected what I had asked was just um, let the cord go white. And I think having my doula there to make sure sort of what was going on was probably very helpful as well. Do you recall how long it took after Santi was born, how long the placenta took to come out? Was it within the hour, would you say? Oh, Oh, well before that, well before that. It was very quick, yeah. I don't know. I felt like 10 minutes. I don't know whether I got the timing or not. quite quick. That's awesome. Yeah, it felt really, really quick, yeah. Did you breastfeed um, in this moment as well uh, or, or a bit later? I think I was in disbelief that something that I had spent so long, so much energy working towards that I really wanted 
in my life I really wanted to experience a vaginal birth had happened. It was like, how could I be so lucky that this has happened for me and that I wanted this so badly? How did it happen for me? You know, what are the sort of chances of of me wanting this so bad and it going to plan? It was unmedicated. It was the experience that I wanted to the point where the obstetrician came in a couple of times during labour and asked how I was going. And I said, I'm really enjoying it. And he thought I was a nutbag. And like, why are you enjoying this? And um, it was everything I wanted and, and more. It was the most incredible experience. And, and yeah, he breastfed straight away. Hmm. He feeds really, really well. You know, he, for both of us, you know, obviously this is my second time, so maybe that's also a contributing factor, but it's just been a very easy transition to, to breastfeed, I think. Um, how were you feeling physically following the vaginal birth and, and how did that compare to the, the recovery from the surgery of the cesarean? Um, did you tear it all or have any any other pelvic floor issues or anything like that? I had a small tear, had a few stitches in my perineum and I had said in my to the obstetrician in my birth plan that I would run natural tearing over an episiotomy unless an episiotomy is like 100% necessary. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that that happened. In terms of the recovery, there was pain at the beginning. It was, my vagina was in pain and I did take, um, being someone that doesn't take a lot of medication, after both births, I was like, I've got to look after a child, just whatever, yes. just give me whatever, you know, is going to help me. Yeah. So I did take pain relief, but I was up and about very quickly, partly because I had cabin fever. Yeah. I, I thought, you know, I could stay being a private patient. I could stay in the hospital for five days or something like that, which I'd said, yeah, I might stay that long. You know, you get your food brought to you and you don't have to do any cleaning or anything like that. But I also knew that there'd come a point at which I very strongly would feel I've got to go home. And this, you know, as I mentioned before, this tuning into what I felt was right was something that served me very, very well. And at that point, which I felt that, which was only after I think two nights, I just got up and said, okay, I'm ready to go home now. Is that okay? And they said, yeah, that's fine. And also Tavio was staying in the hospital with me and he was extremely uncomfortable on the very thin mattress there. So I think he was pleased (laughs) to go back to the bed. I can't remember the pain after the cesarean, but I know that I I did take a lot of a lot heavier, you know, painkillers after that. Yeah. And I feel, you know, I think I'm five and a half weeks postpartum and and people are like, wow, you're already going. I went to an event yesterday and I've been going to my toddler's activities and I felt really, really good. But I also feel mentally really good. I feel yeah. like fabulous. There have been, I think, two occasions at which I've gone, okay, yeah, something's popped up that doesn't feel good mentally. So I just need to check into what I need. And then one, one time it was, okay, I need to get off social media for a period of time. And another time I just need to catch up on a bit of sleep and I've brought it back in check very quickly. Whereas I wasn't able to do that the first time round. It was definitely something, another level of feeling not good. Yeah. So um, I feel really good and you know that's helped our family not just me and and my baby but helped our family for me I really wanted this outcome and I think had I needed to have a cesarean for a very real reason I would have felt very disappointed but I would have known that was the best decision 
Mm. And that was what was what needed to happen. And I would have felt upset not to have it had that experience because it was just for me the most incredible experience. But I was in control of more things during the pregnancy, during our appointments and during the labour and, mm. and the birth as well, which I think is just so important for that yeah. postpartum, you know, how you are postpartum. I think you've touched on it before about how your VBAC, um, being on the journey, such as a VBAC journey, really just change you in in, a, in ways that you probably didn't realise or you know, it changed your your agency for yourself, your the, the way you advocate for yourself in not just birth, but in, in other situations in life. I don't know. Is that did you feel like that that sort of sense um on your VBAC journey and, and into postpartum? Mel, definitely. Yeah. I feel like all of those things that I needed to do to advocate for myself and continuing to ask questions just even if I felt uncomfortable like feel the fear and do it anyway type thing. That as well as listening to my intuition and acting on it. And I think that has become very strong now because I did it for so long and so often. It served me really well and everything, I don't regret anything. At one point during my pregnancy towards the end, I thought, oh, maybe I maybe I should have organised a home birth because I did look into that at one point, but I didn't find anyone that I really vibed with. But then I thought, no, this is it is what it is. It just didn't feel right. It didn't mm. feel right, the people I'd spoken to, and it just didn't, I wasn't quite ready for that yet. And I think those two things combined are things that I probably I needed to do for myself, you know, and that's going to serve me in work and in, in personal relationships and just in life, saying what I want and and saying, no, I don't want it. I don't want that. That's not That's not something that's going to help me or help my children or help my family. For me, I just want to say, Having a VBAC, because I hear a lot of people sort of who aren't sure, and I think it is a very personal decision, which is one thing that I learn. And I think, you know, for people who are wondering what to do next, I really think tuning in and listening, not out of fear, but out of what they really want is something for me that helped a lot and going with what I wanted, not what someone else wanted, even a partner, not what a partner wants, not what a doctor wants, not what your friends do or your mum or your dad does. It's what you want and what you know inside is the right thing. And I think for me that served me well. And for me, I really, really wanted to experience a vaginal birth. And it was just the most incredible experience that, yes, it was another level of intensity that I'm not even sure how I did, but it was aside from everything else, feeling good in postpartum and so on, the actual experience was insane. It was like I knew I wanted it. I didn't know what to expect, but I'm so glad that I was able to experience that. It was I want so to thank you both for having your podcast, you. by the way, because I really think we need um, more, you know, what you're doing by spreading the word about VDAX and by, you know, helping people to tell their stories is so empowering for other people and it's more information for people to help make them help them make their decision. So I want to thank you for having your podcast and it's um, I'm now going to go and listen to more episodes, by the way, because um, I'm out of that. I'm out of that, you know, inward bubble, time, but it's just incredible bubble. that you put your time towards that. And I just want to thank you. It's, you know, it's just, it's amazing what you're doing. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for listening, Rachel. And thanks for finding us. It's absolutely my pleasure. And thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this feedback journey. If you like the show, please subscribe, leave us a review, or consider joining our Patreon. We thank you very much for your support. VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.